0: All right, welcome back. We are Outside the Box, an EMS podcast to drive our clinical performance here in the city of Sugarland. You know me, I'm your host, Kevin, and I'm very excited to have with me today, Amanda Humphreys. we will get to introduce her in a minute. Um, very fine physician that I'm excited to discuss some of these things with. So thanks Thank for joining you. us. Let's, uh, let's talk about you for a minute. We're going to okay. talk about evaluating patients, but what about you first? Why don't you tell us a little bit about you?
1: Sure. Well, my name is Amanda. Um, I am the current medical director for Sugar Land Fire Department. And I am from Ohio. Um, so I think it's funny that you guys think it's cold outside. Um, but um, I'm from Ohio. I did my medical school and residency up there in Cincinnati. And then I did an EMS fellowship out in Albuquerque in New Mexico. And then that brought me here to Texas. So I... Um, have experience with ground and air EMS. Um, I flew as a flight physician back in residency and in fellowship um, and have also served as the assistant medical director for another suburban fire agency back when I was in Ohio.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. So fair to say you've evaluated a patient or two?
1: Once or twice. Okay,
0: good. We got we got good knowledge base that we're going here. Yeah. Um. Specifically today, we're talking about our shock index. Well, not our shock index, the shock index, not really ours. but we Are we're you gonna... taking
1: credit for it now? No,
0: zero. Absolutely <laughs> not. I did not come up with this. I just use it. But we're going to talk about it. We're talking about how we use it, uh, how to make it an effective tool, and something that we roll into our assessment. Something you're very familiar with.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: And uh, why don't you tell us about it? What is there to know?
1: Sure. So the shock index is heart rate divided by systolic blood pressure. So it's heart rate over systolic blood pressure. Um, and the thing that I love about the shock index is that it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine. Um, it's going to be abnormal before you really notice either one of mm. those individual vital signs as grossly abnormal.
0: I like the way you put that. Yes. Yeah. So we'll even like demonstrate some of that with our examples. But yes, this is this is going to be Alarm bells before the alarm bells would go.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so the shock index has been around for a long time. Um, It's been studied in hypovolemia. So like hemorrhagic shock is where we see that most often. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also been studied in sepsis. Um, And so when when you think about those numbers, so you've got your heart rate divided by your systolic blood pressure. And so when your heart rate is higher than your systolic blood pressure that's when you should be really alarmed and so values of 1 or greater are grossly abnormal um, normal is about 0.5 to 0.7 for a healthy human being who hasn't just like run a marathon or anything cuz yeah. you know they're just like just like surge criteria um, there are other things that can make this abnormal other than being ill um, But like I said, normal is 0.5 to 0.7. Once you get around 0.9, depending on what study you look at, somewhere between 0.9 and 1 is an independent predictor of mortality. Mm -hmm. And so um, the thing, like I said, that I love about this is that it's really the canary in the coal mine. Um, You know, you've got uh, systolic blood pressure in the low 100s. But a heart rate that's also in the low 100s, um, either of those numbers by themselves might not really set off those alarm bells. But when you look at them together, um, that's what this number does for you.
0: I like it. And it, I think it, it's even – I like it we're putting vital signs together. But now it's a step further of how are they interacting with each other.
1: Exactly. Because
0: it's, it's pretty crucial to look at blood pressure and heart rate as we're evaluating hemodynamic status. But absolutely, we can very much so be limited if we're using – two sets of evaluation criteria to evaluate the blood pressure and another set to evaluate the heart rate next to each other instead of how are they are they playing together mm-hmm. and let's let's take an example to demonstrate this because you're talking about sure. normal being 0.5 which means that typically the heart rate is going to be half of what the systolic blood pressure is and we have some some wiggle room in there that our nice textbook 120 over 80 with a heart rate of 60
1: mm-hmm.
0: is your shock index of 0.5 right so that's what we see. And even to be a little bit more reasonable about it, a blood pressure of 120 over 80 with a heart rate of 80 is our 0.7, mm-hmm. technically 0.75. But that still keeps us in our very normal range when we're talking about shock index. Yep. And we're going to talk about some other examples where classically we wouldn't have been concerned, but the shock index is going to say, hey, wait a minute, you might want to pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to those a little bit later on. But I like looking at this. I think shock index... I always talk about hemodynamic status as kind of like the investment, how expensive things are. Mm-hmm. So a systolic blood pressure of 110, 100, 110, could be fantastic, could not. And the heart rate is the cost to me. That's how it, I put it mm-hmm. in my mind. So if we have a heart rate of 80 to get a blood pressure of 110, that's a, it's a relatively inexpensive 110 systolic. Compared to a heart rate of 120, to make a systolic of 110, mm-hmm. that's a pretty expensive 110. Yeah. And uh, I kind of see shock indexes as, as the quantification of that, that the higher this number is, the more expensive that blood pressure is. Mm-hmm. So rather than go with the classic end of as long as the systolic is 90, you're fine. Right. You know, now we put it into much more context and it's more dynamic. And the blood pressure of 120, the systolic, may not be such a great thing mm. depending on what we're looking at. Um
1: how much does it cost to get you there? That I I haven't heard that phrased like that before, but I really like it.
0: I like that one. And it's I, I, I like looking at it, um, like I said, as, as we're treating people that are in this hemodynamic instability, we're treating the shock state and we get no changes in blood pressure. But our heart rate starts to improve and it comes down. Again, I look at it and it becomes a less expensive blood pressure, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially as we're dealing with the sick, sick patients. And maybe 90 systolic really is, man, that's a pipe dream. Right. But we go from a heart rate of 140 down to 120 with our therapy. Well, heck, we're we're going in the right direction.
1: We're making some progress.
0: But as as pre-hospital providers, we're not classically taught that. We're taught you get that blood pressure up, period. Right. You know, and then... We could start off the whole next discussion about pressors and trauma. And I know how you have uh, some certain feelings about that. Uh, That's not appropriate course of therapy.
1: I do, in fact, have feelings about that.
0: So I think this is what gives us better tools than to blindly go at something like that that lands us in massive amounts of pressors in a trauma case that's bleeding out because the book said get their blood pressure up. Right. We now have a a better perspective to say, hey, our, our therapy is effective and while we may not hit the absolute arbitrary numbers that we want in a systolic blood pressure, we actually get a more rounded view of this patient's condition, and we can mm-hmm. feel better about it and and understand where we're going. Um, all right. Cool. So let's talk about these references. Reference ranges again real quick, because then we're going to uh-huh. dive into you know, some of these examples. Okay. Normal is?
1: About 0. 0.5 to 0.
0: 0.75. Right. Okay. I like it. And... Point nine is where we hit that like mortality range.
1: Depending on what data you look at, somewhere between point nine and one, it, you've got is an independent predictor of mortality. So if you're at point nine, you should definitely be starting starting to worry.
0: And so point eight, are you concerned?
1: Um, you should start to look closely at what's going on. I think I'm not. I'm not going to sound the alarm at 0.8, um, but... But it got your attention. It it should start to get your attention. Okay. And you should be recalculating this number, you know, every with every repeat set of vital signs. Nice. To see what direction you're going. Just like anything else, you know, trends tell you a lot. Mm-hmm. If it was 0.5 and now it's 0.8... Uh, that worries me. If it was, you know, 0. 0.75, and now it's 0. 0.8, well, uh, you know, that's margin of error.
0: Yeah, and as we look at that predictor of mortality, um, there's some good literature that says if we're ever over this 1.0, mm-hmm. we have an increased chance of mortality. So even though we encounter this patient, uh, high shock index, we deliver therapy. We resuscitate them very nicely, the trauma team receives them, resuscitates very nicely, and we correct the problem in there, there's still increased statistical odds against them right. for having ever been in that position.
1: Right. Just like, you know, in head injury, any single episode of hypoxia or hypovolemia increases mortality. It's the same. It's it's just a measure of how sick this person is. Yeah.
0: And you you get an amazing benefit that we don't get in the pre-hospital setting that you get more time with this patient Mm -hmm. to begin with to see this course of therapy. And like you said, trends tell you everything and you have more trending time. Right. Uh, But also being in the facility, these are other colleagues of yours that are going to continue on the care after they come through the ED and you get a little bit more of the feedback loop and see how people are doing um, that. We don't get to see that in the pre-hospital setting. Mm -hmm. So we get this patient sick as can be and Shock index of 1.5. Nasty. And we go put some whole blood into this patient because we've jumped to the future and we have whole blood here. And this patient gets so much better nice. and their heart rate comes down and their oxygenation. Improve, all these things improve greatly. Uh, there's still the uh, organ dysfunction and damage that happens with that. Right. Um, there's, these are long-term effects that we reverse this terrible immediate problem mm-hmm. But that's what you tend to encounter, that we're not talking about shifts in blood chemistry and other organ dysfunction problems mm-hmm. that we need to mitigate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a thing that we may see is that our care is fantastic pre-hospital and on the scene, but there may be some damage that's done. Right. And, and we don't necessarily get to see that. And it doesn't seem to compute for us sometimes that we get the feedback that uh, that patient expired. They did not make it through surgery, whatever it may be. They never left the ICU. And it just doesn't make sense. We're like, oh, but we did amazing things. And there's just some things we can't undo.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They're just just like you said it. There are just some things that we can't undo. Um, And this is just, you know, a shock index of 1.5 tells me that that patient is incredibly sick. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, one of my faculty when I was in residency, a very, very wise man, um, once told me that our patients get themselves so close to the edge of the cliff anything we do to try to bring them back a little bit um is is a victory and sometimes you know we can only bring them back so far um it's just like in you know for example in stroke there is brain that is damaged at the moment of the event and there's nothing that we can you know there's brain that dies Mm -hmm. in that moment there's nothing we can do to bring that back it's the penumbra it's that tissue that is in jeopardy um, that we can potentially affect. Mm. And so sometimes patients have, you know, done things to themselves that happened at the point of injury before we were ever called. Um, there's nothing that we can do about that. We can only give them, you know, the best chances that that we possibly can with the tools that we have.
0: Yeah. We come out of school as pre-hospital providers, all of us with this falsehood that we're going to mm. fix people mm-hmm. uh, we do our mega codes and oh they got a pulse back and they woke up and what, like
1: right, and right it's
0: not not realistic
1: we come out of med school thinking the same thing Oh, great okay not just yeah, us Think not God. just not just you
0: Well, let's just dispel that myth and right. i think it's a more reasonable goal in our therapy like you said like this sage wisdom coming through is not to fix problems per se but to make things better
1: Right. We can mitigate damage.
0: Yes. So uh, we keep it from getting worse. We try to make things a little bit better. And there are a lot of times that, you know, we don't fix the problem. And that's it's really weird, at least where I came out through school. We weren't taught that. Only a continuum of care is just kind of like a buzzword that happens. Uh-huh. But like legit, like the quarterback can't score all the touchdowns. Mm. Need the other players on the team. Right. So, um, OK, I think we go around and round about it. Right. I want to give some examples of shock index. Okay. And we can talk about those. And then I hope to share some professional examples with us, too, as this come up for you. So let's take a blood pressure of 110 over 60. I'm I'm big on context. Like, what's it mean in context, right? Like, I can't look at... So a blood pressure of 110 over 60, I would not be alarmed about 110 over 60.
1: No, not at all. In
0: itself. This person's heart rate is 100. I, I really have a hard time being very concerned about a heart rate of 100.
1: That's like that's something that's really easy to pass up, right? Mm-hmm. Like your your systolic blood pressure ha- meets the three numbers test. Your heart rate meets the second number is zero test. Totally easy to look right past those.
0: Mm-hmm. And that one comes up because I did the math ahead of time. That shock index is point nine. So we're, we're we're into concerning.
1: We're in that potential increased mortality range.
0: This is I mean, holy cow! Like what what an eye opener that we right we wouldn't have thought let's go even further. let's say 110 over 70 fabulous 110 over 70 is great uh, heart rate's 120 mm. again one that i think a heart rate of 120 might get my attention but i'm not holy cow i don't need the calvary yet on a heart rate of 120
1: it's just because of their pain right
0: it, yeah they're a little anxious they're nervous
1: they're a little so, anxious well. and in pain
0: shock index of 1.1 1. 1. Mm. so now we are even over the thoroughly the right. danger zone is here we have passed it we're gone we took off exactly and uh, the last example of it something that I think would cause us some some cognitive dissonance as EMS providers with the way we're taught to look at this that a blood pressure of 110 over sixty with a heart rate of 150
1: hmm.
0: uh, that's our shock index of one point four profoundly shocky patient right We'd worry about this 150, but for some reason we wouldn't think about it. In terms of the blood pressure because it's 110 systolic the blood pressure is fine
1: right note that the blood pressure never changed in any of their this i i apologize note that the systolic never changed
0: Mm mm-hmm right and that's like yeah i mean so this is this is the key here to clue us in the canary in the coal mine exactly i really like that expression that where we traditionally wouldn't have been concerned about a blood pressure, and I would not have been concerned about a heart rate, that we need to start thinking about them together in this blood pressure heart rate combo. Right now we have a concern, or we or we don't have concern. Right. Um, one caveat that we need to make sure we mention in this is the patient presentation. That a normal person with a heart rate of 100 and a decent, a softer blood pressure, looking at you without massive blood loss, without mm-hmm. uh, other indications of hypoperfusion, like, it's, let's be a little bit smarter about it. That right. there may, it may not be telling you a problem. It's, it's just an evaluation tool.
1: Let's investigate why. Did, yeah. they, did they just run a long distance? Were they just in a car accident and they're you know, all, their epi's running, they're all amped up?
0: Yes. Oh, so let's remember. So we, we talk about it classically with, uh, with with the hypovolemia here, like you mentioned, in trauma cases, um, there are other generalized uses of it. There's even some literature that talks about using it in asthma, which was really interesting to talk about the severity of what you're looking at in asthma. Okay. Um, there was a bit more digging I had to do to really, I mean, that not for this conversation, but that, I thought that was a really interesting one that it talked about. It's just a severity scale, period. Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily need to be limited to shock. But today we're talking about shock itself right. and, and the hypoperfusion. end. do you have some situations from your professional experience where shock index has been important, played a role? Uh, just what's it look like in action in the ED?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I can think of one patient in particular, um, an older gentleman who was on a riding lawnmower and rolled it over. Um, it kind of falls under the 100 ways that working on a farm can kill you. Mm. Um,
0: Sounds like a good book.
1: It does sound like a good book, <laughs> doesn't it? A hundred ways to die on a farm.
0: Like Final Destination kind of stuff.
1: There you go. Okay. There you go. All
0: right, so he comes into the you, you,
1: So comes in, um, has a systolic of about 100 and a heart rate of 105. Now – those those numbers by themselves super easy to ignore mm-hmm. right um mm-hmm. but when you look at them together that's your shock index of just over 1 and there are some other things in someone who especially like an older patient that should give you should help you clue in to why those not so grossly abnormal vital signs are concerning. Mm. So this particular patient had a heart condition. And so what does that often mean?
0: Oh, some medications that control his heart rate. I exactly.
1: Bet. Exactly. Something like beta blockers. Mm-hmm. And so these are, I'm kind of working in some of the caveats, some of the limitations to the shock index. There are things that we do to patients and there are, there are conditions that patients have that can make this um, less effective. Although in this case, he was on beta blockers, um, and his heart rate, he still managed to mount a heart rate of 105. Hmm. So 105 on a patient that's beta blocked, that should... That's
0: a concern.
1: That, yeah.
0: Wow.
1: So maybe they're just inadequately beta blocked, um, or maybe their body is giving its last hurrah before they start to, like... You know, very obviously fall off the cliff.
0: So, did this guy have uh, massive external hemorrhage? What, what what kind of like injury presentation did he give you?
1: He did. Um, he had just below the knee an almost total amputation.
0: Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, something you would expect, right? Again, I. You look at this, pretty significant injury, very right. noteworthy injury, but heart rates, eh blood pressures, eh. classically we'd looked at and like, this guy's pretty darn lucky. He's doing okay. Right. Instead of the no, he's he's dying. You're especially considering that medical history, the medications involved. Mm-hmm. Um, also keep in mind there that the beta blockers in there, we got rate control issues. We also have the hypertension medications that mm-hmm. when the body wants to respond to increase the blood pressure, we have chemical resistance to that that no, no, no. We're gonna right. we're gonna go with that.
1: Right right. those get in the way when you're in a major trauma when your body really could use some blood pressure.
0: Yeah, and let, let's be honest because it's one of my favorite things that uh, I've taken from you that our patients have got given right to have as many things wrong with them as they want that you may have many somebody... as they damn well, please. <laughs> there it is, right. Maybe rate control and blood pressure control. Like you may be dealing with both of these together and you got a you know a really sick patient that's made worse. By their long-term care medications and
1: oh, exactly, goodness. I it's a hot mess, right?
0: I love it. I love it. Hot mess, right? If it was easy, it wouldn't be fun. Precisely. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about some of these limitations of this. Okay. And like you had mentioned, some so, so beta blockers, of course, are this massive limitation because it essentially invalidates one of your numbers. It becomes a a very uh, inaccurate reading of what right. we're actually measuring. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what else do you see as this is great, but what are some of those butts for mm-hmm. you? What are some of something that give you pause.
1: Well, there's always the context, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just like you know, every time I work out, I meet surge criteria. So. If I have a good solid workout, I'm probably going to have a shock index of greater than one, and so. Just looking at your clinical context, um, you always have to keep that in mind. Another thing that we probably should have pointed out a little bit earlier, um, this only works in adults. This falls Mm. apart in kids whose heart rate is often higher than their systolic blood pressure. And so that's something to keep in mind. There are some kind of modified pediatric shock indices. Um, I think it's kind of beyond our scope to go into those, Um, but there are, you know, calculator tools that you can use if you're really interested Um, but just the classic down and dirty easy to remember heart rate over systolic only works in adults
0: and actually there's some literature that talks about um, how we we get older in our geriatric population we kind of lose accuracy too because of Mm. the way the body changes in its compensatory mechanisms Mm -hmm. and its ability to compensate that it may be a little bit more bleak then the shock index tells us as mm-hmm. we start getting to the 60s, 70s, 80s, older than that, that we get the we get the 80-year-old that falls, hit pain. You know, we take a look at it, short and rotated, all these things. Heart rate's okay. Blood pressure's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, shock index is, uh, you know, 0. 0.8. I'm going to pay attention to it. I'll make sure right. and tell somebody that that may not be an accurate representation of what we're looking at just because of the age and, and how that goes. So we kind of get it at both ends, that the book ends, pediatric end, we definitely lose accuracy. But as we get a little bit older, again, the context plays a very big part of that. And taking in this clinical picture and and a full-on assessment, this is not any kind of substitute for the rest of your assessment. Right. Let's, Let's make sure that's very clear. And if you're worried about a shock index, because I will never miss an opportunity to push it, check your end title. Entitle is going to tell you whether you are or not on the right track.
1: I should have added that in my intro. Entitle is my favorite vital sign.
0: Ditto. It's (laughs) fabulous. It'll tell you so many things. It
1: tells you so many many. things.
0: So if you are worried about your shock index or you can't remember what the formula is for shock index and you're like, I don't know, systolic blood pressure and heart rate, they're pretty close and they're not supposed to be that close. I don't like it. And your Entitle pops up at 14. Guys, you're dealing with a shock patient. Right. Okay. Especially in, in the face of massive blood loss. You're dealing with a sick, sick trauma patient.
1: Right, right. Look at your, again, look at your clinical clues. Um, If you've got signs of blood loss and you've got all those things, Mm -hmm. something is going wrong.
0: And this is a great one that you will have young people who compensate far better Mm -hmm. and will maintain a good mental status in a shock state while they're compensating. They're able to tolerate that a little bit better. And that's very deceiving that we look at them. I'm talking to them just fine. And this is another tool to go back to my fun little expression that uh, patients don't suddenly deteriorate. We just suddenly notice. Mm. And I say it tongue in cheek, but it's because we don't know what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at the 21-year-old who sustains some massive blood loss, has some softer vital signs, but is awake talking to us, we, we would typically discount that. This person's fine. They're doing great. Sure, we'll drive them downtown because they're doing fine now. Right. And then suddenly they stopped talking because their shock index was a 1.3. They were tolerating it for a little bit. And now they are done tolerating that. Right. And it's caught up with them. Um, right. Where our, our older population will start losing that mental status capacity a bit earlier in these cases.
1: Kids are particularly notorious for mm-hmm. that.
0: Mm-hmm. Kids
1: do great until they stop doing great.
0: Yeah. Those are tough. They're very Yep. You had mentioned that uh, this has some application in sepsis. Mm-hmm. Anything uh, more to add to it? Some caveats with it? Um, Have you used it for a lot of sick patients coming in with this just nondescript altered mental status that feels warm?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think the caveats are the same. Um, You know, sepsis tends to be an older population. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things that we talked about in older adults that can discount this number um, tend to play more of a role in sepsis. Our trauma population tends to be younger. Mm -hmm. Um, Our sepsis population tends to be older. And so all the same caveats. um, But yeah, it works great in that altered mental status patient who's, you know, got a fever. They're not quite acting right. Mm -hmm. um, Probably have a UTI. It always takes forever to get the urine. And so you're not quite sure what you're treating yet. Mm -hmm. Um, If their shock index is approaching one, you should really, you know, that should raise your alarm bells for something like sepsis as opposed to like, you know, the the viral syndrome, kind of mm-hmm. viral syndrome, NOS versus sepsis. When the heart rate is creeping up and the blood pressure is creeping down, um, that points me in the direction of sepsis. Yeah.
0: Okay. So even as a, as, not even as a, a gauge of severity, but even a little bit helping nudge in a diagnostic yeah. direction as we're, as we're working differentials, too. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic tool. And I, I wish I had pulled a few more points out, but uh, anaphylaxis and asthma, like they talk about, I thought it was really interesting. Especially mm-hmm. anaphylaxis makes a little bit more sense because if it's uh, pretty severe, we head down to a distributive problem with right. the vasculature becoming permeable. So we can get the same kind of thing. Again, children, a little different. Right. Excuse our scale. But we get the adults experiencing a reaction with a shock index of 1.2. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's be worried about that, and let's be ready to treat that aggressively. Let's talk about – oh, man. I think we talked about all the points. Talked about uh, reference ranges and how pe- yep. people compensate better, but we get too young. Alters our results. I love taking vital signs of kids and using it to make a point about context. Because uh, if you have a patient with a heart rate of 140 – would you be concerned? Depends on how old. Ah, uh, right. So this one is my favorite. When people are like, yeah, one forty is concerning. But if it's a one year old, not an alarm. Nah. heart rate. If you have somebody who's breathing thirty two times a minute, I will. Right, the infant, the forty year old, right, right. right. Um, same kind of thing goes that hey, you have a a you have a heart rate of 80. 60. Heart rate of sixty. People are like that's fantastic. Normal heart range is sixty to one hundred. But that's also your infant. I'm worried about an infant mm. with a heart rate of 60. That's, yeah. So uh, reference ranges are a starting point. They're not an absolute. Um, context is crucial. And shock index is just another one of those things. It's as great as it is and as useful as it's going to be, it's going to be limited. Right. The context matters. How? Why are we getting these numbers? How are we getting the numbers? Really, that should be our question for any vital sign that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. And without a good clinical picture that aligns with it, it becomes an anomalous finding. Um, But at the same time, we have all these different limitations, all these different things that affect the number. Mm -hmm. So it's not an absolute. Just because somebody has a shock index of 0.6 does not mean that they're not a shock patient. It just means that their vital signs are not presenting in the way That is captured by the shock index.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's a a tool in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. That's how we should think about it. It's a tool in the toolbox. It tends to become abnormal um, a little bit faster than either the heart rate or the systolic blood pressure, one or the other by themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like I said, canary in the coal mine, it helps you see what's coming just a little bit faster.
0: I agree. And we, we absolutely should be rolling this into practice. And we talk about the reference ranges, 0.5 1.0. I think the, the very functional thing to take from this, like you had said, that heart rate and systolic blood pressure should not be the same. We don't like that. Heart rate should be less than our systolic blood pressure. So if you're even like, uh, is it which one over the other one, whatever it is. Right. The higher your heart rate, the more expensive that blood pressure is. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't cost you that much. If we're doing right. It right and we're healthy, it shouldn't be that expensive of a blood pressure. Right. Um, so we can even just take that.
1: If your blood pressure costs a dollar, then...
0: I like it. Yep. I like it. Okay. Dr. Humphreys, I really appreciate your time and your thoughts about shock index today. Absolutely. Are there any other closing comments you want to throw in there, parting words for us today, um, resounding endorsements for the shock index, or other comments?
1: Uh, you know, I think people love controversy and everything has controversy surrounding it. You're going to find people who are naysayers of the shock index. Um, But in my mind, it's just a tool in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. It's just something to look at, you know, look at it in conjunction with your blood pressure, in conjunction with your um, heart rate, in conjunction with the whole clinical presentation and the patient's history. You know, if they're on beta blockers and their heart rate is 90, even if they've got a systolic of 110, you know, that shock index doesn't necessarily um, sound any alarm bells. But it's something that you should be thinking about. So this isn't replacing anything. It's just another tool in the toolbox.
0: Yeah. just another layer of evaluation on something we already have. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Doc, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: And then we will catch you all next time. Thanks for tuning in. (音楽) ¶¶